from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz Headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Home Depot tries to nail the circular economy, some insider tips for serving on nonprofit boards, a post-election look at the corporate sustainability policy agenda, and Royal Caribbean sets sail for renewables. This ship is leaving the station. No, wait, that's not right. This week on 350. It's November 16th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from her perch in New Jersey is editorial director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I almost spit out my coffee on that one. <laughs> oh, that's probably not good, but whatever. <laughs> no, I laughed out loud. Oh. I snorted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got. I, I like. I, I always like to be responsible for the occasional snort, but only occasionally. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this has been an interesting uh, week. Uh, good newses and bad newses. Uh, you know, we saw uh, this uh, CDP report and the uh, International Energy Agency report that about energy, of course. Um, not the best news about oil companies uh, or energy demand. So lots of, uh, lots of reports out this week, and I've been digging into them. Um, I have, quite, quite frankly, have not had the chance to completely read the IEA report yet, it, you know, it had the usual sort of good news, bad news as far as renewables. Um, you know, yay, renewables are gaining more ground, boo, uh, you know, oil still very much out there and, and, and the demand for oil still very well, much um, Well, here's the, reality. The, big, the big takeaway from the International Energy Agency uh, report is that global energy demand is, is going to grow by a quarter through 2040, leading to increased demand for oil. So, you know, renewables, and then you add that to the CDP uh, research, uh, and go ahead and tell us what that said. And, and it's it's not it's not pretty. It's not pretty. I mean, the 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 oil thing is you know for lots of different reasons, transportation, of course, but also you know just other applications for for it, um, like heating and and so forth. But the 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 CDP report that you've referred to is. Um, new analysis out of them um, this week that that looked at the 24 biggest European oil and gas companies and how much, to, you know, a lot of them are talking up a good game. Like they're, they're yes, we're, we're going to start, uh, you know, investing less in, in oil exploration and natural gas and so forth. Um, but the, the, the reality of the numbers is pretty, is pretty bleak. And 1.3% of the, uh, the CapEx at, at the 24 biggest European oil and gas companies was spent on low carbon investments this year. So 1.3%. So, you know, the money talks, um, what are they spending this on? You have things like carbon capture and storage, um, clean, you know, clean natural gas technologies and so forth. So, and, and beautiful clean coal. Oh God. Um, <laughs> you know, so again, the reality is that we've got to get the oil and gas companies moving faster. Um, I have, I have this, you know, I, it's kind of a cognitive dis, <laughs> disconnect because I got another, I got a press press sort of announcement this week, which 
I puzzled over a little bit and then set aside because I frankly didn't know how to how to really process it. And it was um, Occidental, right? So um, Occidental Petroleum has been using new technologies to help make its own uh, exploration more less less carbon intensive, if you will. Let's just put it that way. And uh, they've just announced this huge solar solar installation at an oil field to help them take more, more oil out of the ground. So it's just one of these things where I'm thinking, I, I, I just kind of, like I said, it's, it's a disconnect in my brain. I sometimes, I feel like I'm going around in circles and, you know, I know that everything cannot happen overnight, but it just seems like there needs to be a little bit more urgency. Yeah, we had a session, uh, I moderated a session on the new carbon economy at Verge 18 this year with Charlene Russell, who's the vice president of low carbon strategies from Oxy, or as Occidental Petroleum is generally known. And uh, yeah, they're talking about how do we become the first carbon neutral oil company? And of course, that's through the extraction stage, not actually burning this stuff uh, by capturing carbon, injecting it in uh, back into wells to do what they call enhanced oil recovery. And, you know, I, I can't figure out whether that's a beautiful thing or whether that's, you know, just another version of, you know, can you, can you say beyond petroleum from BP, which uh, set us up with great expectations and BP turned out to be BS in terms of the amount that they were actually investing in oil and, and, and renewables and even natural gas was still way under 1% you know, per the CDP thing. And, um, and this is challenging. And, and, you know, going back to the IEA report, um, it, it's, it's basically saying that when we look at uh, the energy demand and the energy production in Asia, coal-fired power plants there are an average of about 11 years old, where as they're, they're about 40 years old in, in the United States, which means that they've got a lot of runway ahead of them. They've got, a, you know, 30 or 40 more years of life they're not going to be decommissioned anytime soon, as they will be uh, here in the States. So uh, that's challenging news when you sort of look at um, all the great reporting you do, Heather, on renewables or the growth of renewables and corporate procurement therein. But let's move to the more exciting piece of this, which is that we announced this week our newest event brand. And I telegraphed this a little bit at the end of the show last week, but we're going to be doing Circularity 19 in Minneapolis in June. I am so excited about this conference. <laughs> I can't even tell you. Uh, I, first of all, it's my birthplace, so therefore I have to. I'm thrilled to be going to Minneapolis for uh, for an event. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of circularity, right? Exactly. I'm going full circle. Um, but the, the 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 fact is, I think there is so much conversation that needs to happen around what's possible, what's not possible, what's practical, and so forth. And I, I know bringing these people together, especially in the United States, um, is, is a, an important thing that we can do. And I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the speaker, helping build the speaker list. Uh, I know we've got some, some fabulous people set up already, but, um, but it's just so exciting, so exciting. And we have some great partners. I know that you have that whole list and, and I, we're probably, it's, it's dangerous to try to remember everyone because there's a lot. There's like 12 or 13, Joel? Something like that, yeah. Uh, well, at the top of the list, our principal partner is uh, the Ellen McCarthy Foundation, which, of course, has been leading the charge on Circular and assembling the, uh, 
the CE100, this group of big companies committed to, uh, you know, how do you create uh, products and services that, you know, keep resources uh, in play or use uh, and safely and continuously. But behind them, we've got this great roster of what we're calling community partners, Biomimicry Institute, BSR, Carbon 180, Cradle to Cradle, Products Innovation Institute, uh, Second Muse, Sustainable Packaging Coalition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, World Business Council for Sustainable Development, and I won't bore you with all the others. It's a great list. But it, what that sort of points out, Heather, is that is how good and amazing the response to this event has been, uh, even before we announced it, just talking with some uh, our usual partners, but some new, new organizations we hadn't worked with before. And almost before I could finish the sentence, they'd say, we're in. And that's cool. And I think it's, you know, the reality is that, as you say, there's a need for companies to really be, you know, looking at this seriously, but also understanding what it's all about and what it's not about. Because there's a lot, circularity as it grows, and this is, we've seen this so many times with green buildings and, and clean energy and clean tech and so many things that the word catches on and then everything is circular. Even the stuff we've been doing, recycling that we've been doing for 30 years is circular. Uh, take back programs that we've been doing for five or 10 years is circular. And some of that is-ish, but not necessarily. And so we're getting a lot of you know warmed over kinds of things. But as I said in the piece I wrote uh, on Monday introducing this, what that speaks to is the fact that companies want to be on this bandwagon. They need, they realize that they need to have a circular economy story to tell even if it's not the best story yet, uh, but they just you know, understand that this is where they need to be going. So we are really excited to be you know, heading up this uh, multi-day, three-day event in Minneapolis. Um, uh, not the first event in, in North America on circular economy, but we think it's going to be the biggest and certainly the best uh, for those of you who have you know, seen how we do events. So look for more on that, and we're going to be talking that up uh, over the next six or seven months. So, so much for the year ahead. Let's go to the Week in Review. So let's start, as so many great projects do, at Home Depot. Our colleague, Holly Seacon, wrote a, a really interesting piece about, as we were just talking about, the circular economy and how Home Depot is uh, trying to bring that and figure out how it's going to play that and what the opportunity is uh, within its uh, organization and in product lines. But it's also kind of a story of Home Depot's interesting sustainability story and green marketing story. Because Home Depot was pretty early at the table uh, in the 90s, uh, trying to help consumers, and I guess their, their construction partners as well, use energy efficient and, and uh, non-toxic products. And they, I remember back in the 90s, they put out a green print, which was a, a sort of a big fold-out map-like thing that would show you in their store uh, stores where all of the green products were and what they were and sort of tying, you know, things that they had been probably selling for a long time, like low VOC paints and energy efficient light bulbs, things like that. But of course, uh, and then they got quiet, as a lot of companies did. They cycle through green marketing and and um, step back a little bit and they have management changes. They go through uh, ups and downs. And I think Home Depot had some restructuring uh, things that they went through a number of years ago. But as Holly reports, they're back. Yeah, they're back in a couple of different ways. And to your point about the the quiet nature of their 
of their leadership. I, I, I feel like that's, I mean, that's certainly their, the marketing budgets could have been cut. And yes, there were some other sort of corporate things going on that were larger than just in a sustainability agenda. But what I like, really like about what they're doing is they're, they're doing it anyway, right? So they've been very busy behind the scenes setting toxics um, standards for, the, for the, the sorts of materials that they're putting on their store shelves or selling to customers. And they're, you know, you mentioned energy efficient light bulbs a moment ago. Yes, they're there and they don't necessarily feel like they even really need to trumpet it. They're just, hey, okay, so we're not going to necessarily try to attract the green consumer, but we think all consumers should be green. And so this is what we're doing. So she got some insight into what their priorities are uh, behind the scenes, if you will, when she went to to visit with them for a day, along with, I think, a, a number of other reporters. So for me, that was very striking because it it, it points to again and the the movement the movement going mainstream if you will in in many different ways within companies and this this is an example of of course a home improvement company which could really touch uh, lots lots of different um, residential structures which we don't really write about that much frankly but um, but really important really really important and the other thing that I will will note and this one is more that goes back to the, the the circularity event that we were just discussing. It, like many, Home Depot, like many retailers, is really looking at its packaging, right? So how much does it wrap up the stuff that you're taking home to, to again, unwrap and put on your wall or, or put in your, in your light fixtures or so forth? And how much do you really need um, all those different layers on that palette and so forth. And so it's really focusing in on how the products are wrapped, how, how, how things are getting around and so forth and how it gets, how it takes things back. So it is showing leadership on that front. And I, I believe, you know, so it's very much embracing the, the idea of circular packaging, um, which we, as we know, is one of the hottest uh, topic areas for for companies that are thinking about this. So I I really I'm glad to have this update. I think it's really important. Uh, I wish they talked more about it, but frankly, the fact that they had reporters there who they knew were probably going to go write a story like this one, <laughs> maybe maybe they're ready to to have a little bit more um, uh, you know outward facing dialogue. Yeah, uh, but I also think you know this is a cautionary tale. Too, uh, as to the point we were making earlier about sort of warmed over recycling and take back things. Uh, the question is, it's great that they're taking back the packaging. And I don't know the answer to this, but I just want to make, you know, we need to be cognizant of this. What happens to that packaging? Does it t get turned into parking lot bumpers? Um, okay, that's not really circular. That's upcycling or, or something. Uh, or is this packaging... You know, go become new packaging and go back into endless circular reuse. And that's where I'm not exactly clear, and I, I don't know that we got that in this story, but I, that's where we want to watch and make sure that what's being called circular actually is, and that companies uh, like Home Depot, which uh, I've admired for a long time, and I believe that they're you know, on this uh, path, honestly and, and intentionally, but still there's a tendency to, to jump on bandwagons and, and sail away. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you another word I'm watching in the word is the phrase value chain. 
Hmm. What about it? <laughs> well, why is that a different from a supply chain? Oh, well, I'll tell you my, de- my definition is that the supply chain is obviously everything that goes up to the manufacturing of something where things come from uh, before they're made. But the value chain goes all the way um, down to customers and, and, and use and then what happens at the end of its life and probably even goes further upstream or could go further upstream to the raw material extraction, um, which is not necessarily that something that a company buys directly. So it may not be considered part of their supply chain, but it's certainly part of their value chain in terms of of the materials and as they flow through the system and in, in a circular model, then flow back into uh, raw materials or some other productive use. So does that clear it up? It clears it up. I kind of think it's a little bit of a, a marketing buzz, um, but that's maybe, okay. Maybe some that, of thank our... Thank you. I appreciate that that uh, definition. Yeah, maybe some of our listeners will weigh in on what value chain really well, I means. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. But uh, speaking of uh, you know floating ideas, you did a piece about Royal Caribbean and a creative workaround for onshore renewable energy procurement. Do, yeah, t- so- do tell. Do tell, I know. Uh, So here's the thing. Uh, I get a lot of announcements about power purchase agreements, and I'm thrilled. I am thrilled, I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled. And as as you know, we take a look at them on a quarterly basis because, frankly, there are so many now popping up every, uh, you know, from week to week that we really have to focus in on the unique ones. There's not enough for me to write about all of them. Um, This one is a little bit different. And one of the reasons I just chose to feature this deal um, is is not because of the size. It's actually kind of a, it is on the large side. It's 200 megawatt, 12 year long power purchase agreement by Royal Caribbean with Southern Power. And it's for a wind facility in Kansas. Now, what made this unique for me was a couple of different things. Number one, Royal Caribbean doesn't have a whole lot of electricity uh, consumption to to offset, right? So in going out and thinking about how much it needed to procure, it really was basically having to bounce that against its um, the fuel consumption of its ships. So you know it a lot of its its uh, embodied emissions are are on its ships are floating around at sea, and um, it's the fuel. So it's they really have to address that in a, in a totally different way. So through all the efficiency investments that they're making, and there are many, I won't get into them right now, but this, you know, they're not like many of their, their, uh, you know, business peers in that they have a lot of onshore operations. So that was number one. You know, I thought, hmm, that's, that's kind of unique. The other unique thing was that these are not your traditional renewable energy um, credits or certificates. Uh, they, they've gone out and worked with their partners, um, Southern and also Schneider Electric, to get the whole project um, verified as a, a carbon standard offset. So it's, it's certified under the verified carbon standard, and it mean, that means it's, it's got a different sort of impact than, than the, the other PPAs that you see announced out there. It's, it's got, it was vetted um, more closely for the land use for the, um, the additional, I know that's a t- problematic word, but for, for how much it added to the, the grid, the local grid, 
And quite frankly, I, I don't believe this project would have happened if it had not been um, financially structured in that way. So this was just a really unique project. It took them almost two years to figure out with some of the, the carbon offset organizations how to structure it. Um, and then, then moving forward, it, it had to be a different sort of R, RFP and, um, and, and get handled in a very different way. So very unique sort of transaction, and that's why I chose to feature it. Yeah, and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer here, or maybe it's Doug Downer, um, but I, I feel like I'm raining on everyone's parade this podcast. But um, the one thing you mentioned, the fuel that they use, and that's their main, uh, certainly their main energy and definitely their main carbon impact, climate impact, um, is this bunker fuel and, uh, that most shipping companies use with the cargo or, or passenger, as Royal Caribbean is. You know how much of of the good work they're doing on renewables and PPAs and additionality is actually offsetting that, and and uh, relative to how much they're talking about this, I'm not asking you to tell me that, but I just sort of want to make sure that we keep these companies honest if they're talking about this um, electricity thing, but it's really only offsetting a small, maybe even tiny portion of of their uh, carbon emissions through fuel use. Uh, we just want to call them on that. I, I don't know that that is the case, but I, I would like to know that at some point. So um, just keep them honest. I've got the follow-up story on my schedule already. Okay. Well, speaking of keeping people honest, we had this great piece by our editor-at-large, Catherine Winkler, the former CSO at EMC, and uh, about what it's like to be on uh, nonprofit boards. Catherine is... Uh, extraordinary, uh, generous person who's been uh, on lots of boards and mentoring uh, both young people and, and, and older professionals, and writes what, what her life as a former chief sustainability officer has been like on the, the three nonprofit boards she's been on, and, and um, gives some tips on that. I thought that was really interesting and helpful. We all get uh, uh, asked to be on those. I'm on a couple or three different nonprofit boards or advisory boards, one or the other, president of the board of one organization. And, and it's, you know, it's a lot of work. And it's also challenging because you feel you've got, you know, good ideas and good input from the business world. And they you say, you know, nonprofit world doesn't work that way. And so you, there's a lot that you have give and take, which is exactly why you're there. But um, I loved uh, Catherine's contribution here. This is a very thoughtful piece, and I loved it because it made me sit back and think about how you know how much collaboration is going on between the the corporate uh, or slash private sector and the nonprofits. Um, we write about these kinds of collaborations all the time, and I know that the corporate world is inclined, more inclined than, than it has been in the past, to want to be more available to. To the nonprofit world, right? Do people see the need for this sort of um, sharing of information and knowledge and 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 so forth? So for me, it was just a wonderful, <laughs> you know, hey, checklist of what if you get asked, you know, these are the sorts of things you have to think about. You know, what are you? Are the, are you the wisdom? Are you the common sense? You know, what what are you bringing? Number one, and then also just you know, like the empathy. So appreciate you know the very practical things like if you join one of these boards, you're paying to go visit to the meetings, you know, <laughs> seriously, because it does, yeah, that, that one, that one surprised me a little bit. I didn't think about it um, so much, but it is very different from being on a 
corporate board in sort of the 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 what you'll have to give. However, that said, I thought it was great insight for anyone uh, who is thinking about nominating um, individuals to their own corporate boards. You know, so you know we know and we've written about this often that sustainability teams need to get their own companies' boards more engaged with their agenda. And how do you do this? And what do you seek? What sorts of what what sorts of people do you seek? And what are you committing them to? You know, are they going to be on lots of different committees? And how? And where? And why? And you know, what exactly? You th- you might be thinking of their knowledge in one way, and they might be thinking of their value. To go back to that word, they they might think their value lies in a totally different area. So it was one of those aha, yeah, good checklist kind of stories, and I really appreciated it. Thank you, Catherine. This week, the organization series held a meeting in San Francisco of Bicep West, Business for Innovative Climate and Energy Policy. And here to talk about that is the director of Bicep from Boston, Ann Kelly. Hey, Ann. Hey, Joel. Good to see you. So Bicep focuses on policy, and uh, you have a policy agenda. You've been helping, encouraging, and prodding, and working with companies to speak out on a variety of policy issues. What's on the policy agenda post-election for 2019? Well, Joel, I'm glad you asked, and we're very excited because we have both a federal agenda and a state agenda. I would say at the federal level, of course, we're just exuberant over the fact that Democrats took over the House, only because, as it turns out, we're more likely to get climate and energy legislation if we have a Democratic majority in at least one chamber. So we're thrilled about the new leadership. Um, We're thrilled about the possibility of some thoughtful carbon pricing legislation coming to the federal level. We expect to see many, many different designs. And we expect that companies will be able to talk to lawmakers about the need to simply tax what you burn and not what you earn. Now, I'm not going to comment on what that design would look like. There's a lot of variables. We have to look very closely about where the revenue is going, about the price per ton, obviously. But it's an exciting moment to really think about companies getting to the point where they realize that this is actually the most efficient mechanism to regulate carbon, is simply to price it. So we're looking at that at the federal level, as well as, of course, pushing back on any of the environmental rollbacks, as we have been continuing to push back from the Trump administration. So let's talk about the price on carbon. How do we get there? Are there specific pieces of legislation? Are there specific actions that you're hoping will take place now that the House has gone blue? Yes, there are. Now, I want to give credit to Representative Carlos Curbelo from Florida, who filed a carbon pricing bill last July. And that carbon pricing bill was not revenue neutral. It would have had the revenue actually going to infrastructure, which is something that we very much need. Representative Curbelo did not, was not reelected. But I'm hopeful that his colleagues will take that forward and that we'll see yet another design coming out of the House of Representatives through Representative Deutsch. And this would be probably a revenue neutral model. I'm confident that we'll see one or two come out of the Senate. Uh, And I think that what we need are a variety of designs to look at so that we can understand what are the core principles and how do we do this right based on all the carbon pricing legislation we have seen to date. How do you get the price right? How do you understand the distributional impact so that low-income individuals are not disadvantaged, so that there's some kind of just transition for workers who may lose their jobs, and so that we can actually be more effective than the regulatory scheme has been so far. So those are some of the core principles and elements, and I look forward to a robust discussion about those alternatives in the coming year. 
So I want to talk a little bit about some of the state things that you see as interesting. But before that, what's your ask of business uh, in price on carbon? What do you want to see happen? What, what should companies be doing? Companies should go out of their way to make public statements as well as private statements to lawmakers about the need for carbon pricing. Uh, They can quote from the recent IPCC report if they'd like. They can talk about their own business interests. The real need for a comprehensive solution at this time, not, not a patchwork of solutions that are different in each state, but really a comprehensive federal solution that prices carbon and gives businesses what they want, which is certainty and effectiveness and a level of predictability about energy pricing. So businesses speaking out, is that writing letters? Obviously, uh, you'd love to have uh, government relations people, lobbyists showing up on Capitol Hill. That's harder to pull off. But what, what are some of the low-hanging fruit of business engagement? Well, the low-hanging fruit, of course, is to join us, to join BICEP, because we make it really easy. We're happy to be the legislative concierge and simply give people the talking points, the safety in numbers, the tools, the techniques to go en masse and to speak to lawmakers. But, you know, they can very much do that on their own as well, talking to individual lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. If they can incorporate into their discussion, no matter what it is they're asking for, if they can simply add, you know, we as a business support the pricing of carbon. We as a business have greenhouse gas reduction goals. We have renewable energy targets. We have energy efficiency targets. We recognize climate change is a problem and we need you to solve it. And probably the most efficient way, if you listen to what all of the economists have said, the most efficient way is simply to price this thing that we need to get rid of and that's carbon. Okay, so let's talk about the state level and what's going on there in states not called California? In states not called California, well, it's a mix, of course, across the country. But I think post-election, what we're very excited about are the seven new Democratic governors. And, of course, Florida remains a recount at at the date of this taping. But we're excited about those governors who specifically stood up and called for renewable energy. Uh, Governor-elect Janet Mills in Maine, Governor-elect Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Governor-elect Polis in Colorado, who said, we are going to make our state embrace renewable energy at a very high level. I mean, we need to support those governors. We need to say, yes, we are with you. And we as companies, what can we do to help you embrace renewable energy? We want to base our new uh, facilities or data centers in your state. What do we do to help you reduce the barriers to the procurement of renewable energy? Because as you know, Joel, most of our leaders in the Fortune 500 have already pledged to purchase renewable energy. They've already pledged to greenhouse gas reduction. So they need state leaders to really get behind them and create energy choice, create a full portfolio of options so that they can buy the renewable energy that they need and therefore locate in the states that offer renewable energy. So this is exciting. I think we'll see some very exciting legislative initiatives. In addition, clean transportation is of vital importance. We need to completely electrify transportation. And there's many states, including Colorado and others, who show real initiative around making clean transportation affordable, removing any barriers to allowing companies to electrify their fleets. We need to make all of that easier more accessible. And as we do that, of course, like all markets, the the price will come down. So you sound a tad more optimistic than you did in uh, February 2017 when I had you on stage at GreenBiz 17, a couple of weeks after the inauguration. Things are looking up? You know, things are looking up, Joel. I, I well remember that February of 17. And I think our concern at that time was that companies wouldn't want to stay in the game. 
The companies would, in fact, be worried about the Trump administration. They wouldn't want to be actual vocal advocates. Well, we were wrong. Companies have, in fact, uh, the numbers have increased. Bicep membership has increased. The number of companies stepping out has increased. In particular, and I guess the greatest example of that would have been those who stood up to encourage the president to stay in the Paris Agreement. On June 2nd, 2017, we had hundreds and hundreds of companies sign our letter to say, we are still in, and they are still in, and now those numbers have more than quadrupled. It was the, you know, the meme that became a movement, to quote you on that. Uh, we are still in is alive and well, and there's no question that companies, regardless of who's in the White House, they're going forward to pursue their clean energy goals. They're moving in the right direction because they've done the math. Well, I'm glad you're still in. Ann Kelly is the director of BICEP. Talk to her here at BICEP West meeting in San Francisco. Thanks, Ann. Thanks so much, Joel. Businesses have been making the case for energy efficiency literally for decades. But the cause of energy productivity, the idea that a company can demonstrably increase its revenue at the same time as cutting its power consumption, and that it can be a source of innovation, well, that usually gets far less attention. That changed this fall when the Climate Group re-energized its EP100 campaign, which it runs in partnership with the Alliance to Save Energy. The original idea behind the EP100 was pretty simple. If 100 companies double their energy productivity by 2030, that action could help avoid more than 170 million metric tons of emissions. And indeed, when the EP100 launched several years ago, there was only that one commitment pathway. Now there are three. To learn more about the new focus, I spoke with Jenny Chu, the head of energy productivity initiatives for the Climate Group. I asked her to reflect on the differences between energy efficiency and energy productivity. There are many. I also asked her to reflect on the creative ways that companies on board with the EP100 are using to set their commitments and why India's business sector is so well represented. Following is an excerpt of our discussion edited for length. You know, we launched EP100 with one pathway, which is doubling energy productivity. And, you know, given the urgency of us having to meet Paris Agreement in a much shorter time frame, you know, we had the foresight that in order to accelerate um, the movement on energy productivity and using energy efficient um, technologies and practices, we really needed to capture ambition across different levels. Um, so we had 15 member companies signed up to doubling energy productivity. We have more who have joined during Climate Week and recently at GCAS. Um, but once we released the two new pathways, we were able to bring in, for instance, um, hard to abate sectors, including oil, gas, and chemicals. So we have Sasol, for instance, um, who, by the way, is South Africa's largest electricity user, um, they're committing to implementing an energy management system throughout their global operations while still having an energy productivity target, which is improving their um, revenue over energy input by 30% by 2030, based on a 2008 baseline year. Um, so we wanted to have new pathways to really capture ambition across different levels and through different means um, to accelerate 
the movement on energy productivity. Um, you know, close to 50% of our greenhouse gas emission reductions um, are focused on better, smarter, more efficient use of energy. And we really needed more companies to, to tell their stories and to really help us all get to the below two degree scenario. Right. So actually, let's just be pedantic and go through each, all three of the areas, all three of the commitment areas. And then um, you've already mentioned a couple of leaders, if you will, but, you know, let's t match them to their commitment area. Of course. So um, the doubling energy productivity pathway, um, as I just mentioned, that was what we launched with EP100 two years ago in 2016. Um, that pathway asks companies to double their energy productivity within a 25-year time frame based on a baseline year that can be as early as 2005. And we have quite a um, great group of companies who have committed under this doubling um, pathway. And this includes Ultratech Cement, Dalmia Cement, H&M, Swiss Re, uh, Landsec, um, just to name a few. And then um, in June of this year, we released two additional um, pathways for companies to become EP100 members. And the second one is focusing on cutting out energy waste. And that asks companies to implement an energy management system throughout their global operations um, as soon as possible, but taking no more than 10 years to do so. So we do have, um, you know, global standards such as ISO 50001, which many companies uh, usually model their energy management systems against, or it can be a homegrown energy management system. And we have, you know, six defining attributes of a good energy management system. And um, just to name a few of those attributes, this includes senior management buy-in, having an energy um, plan, um, it, building in continuous improvement and so forth. And alongside having this commitment to implement a, a sound and robust energy management system is the criteria to have an energy productivity target. Um, instead of having um, them double it, they can actually choose their percentage of EP improvement um, as well as the target year and baseline year. So this really allows companies, especially the ones from hard to abate sectors, still demonstrate ambition, but at one that is um, realistic for their sector. Um, so uh, I mentioned Sassel um, signed up to this energy management system pathway, but we also have um, Hilton who came on board during Climate Week New York City, which was held a few weeks ago. And Hilton has over 5,400 properties worldwide already certified to ISO 50001, but their commitment under this pathway um, ensures that any new properties coming into their portfolio also has an energy management system. And uh, Hilton's energy productivity target is to improve 40% by 2030. And finally, the third pathway that we have is a net zero carbon buildings pathway. And this is done with, uh, the, in collaboration with the World Green Building Council. Um, this pathway asks companies to commit to owning, operating, and managing buildings that will be net zero carbon before the year 2030. And the reason why um, we wanted to have this pathway included as part of the overall EP100 platform is because buildings are a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's a you know, growing sector and 
the way you get to net zero carbon in a building is primarily through energy productivity and energy efficiency measures. So um, again, we have a, a few really leading companies signed up already. Um, we have 11 companies um, under this pathway that include Salesforce, um, Kilroy Realty, um, and a few others as well. So I hope that helps to uh, give a broader um, overview of the types of companies that are involved in EP100, um, as well as more details on our three pathways. Yeah, great. Thank you. That does help. I, I was interested in this. I think one of the things that struck me the most about the current list is how many companies outside of the United States are involved. And, and I think, and I don't, I, I might be misspeaking, but I think that I only saw three U.S. companies. So I'm just curious, like what countries are leading the way on this and why do you think that's so? Absolutely. So that's a great question. And, you know, we purposely soft launched EP100 in India because we really wanted to make sure that this was a global campaign with buy-in from emerging markets, because obviously growth and global greenhouse emissions are primarily coming from um, developing emerging markets such as India and China. So we soft launched EP100 in um, India, and our first company to sign up was Mahindra Mahindra. Since then, they have brought on four other Mahindra companies, ranging from um, vehicle manufacturing to, uh, we also have Mahindra Holidays and Resorts, so the hospitality sector. And accompanying Mahindra, we have also Ultratech, which I mentioned earlier, and it's uh, notable to say that they are the fourth largest cement company manufacturer in the world, if you exclude China, but they're certainly one of India's top three um, man cement manufacturers in terms of output. Um, we also have Dalmia Cement um, and also Gudraj Industries, which is a huge conglomerate as well in India. So, you know, that's close to a fifth of our membership base is companies are companies coming from India. And I think the reason why um, energy productivity is appealing to Indian companies is because, you know, this concept allows them to decouple business development objectives from environmental ones. Um, so it really resonates with companies that have in their agenda to grow as a business, but who also realize the importance of helping India, for instance, to meet its INDCs and um, also um, to be a leader um, in what they see as quite an innovative concept still. So um, they were quick to latch on to the, the um, phrase. It resonated with them, but they also saw it as an opportunity and space for Indian companies to take leadership. Because I, I do think that global campaigns are often um, led by European and, and North American companies. And that's what makes EP100 a little bit different. Hi, this is Katie Fahrenbacher, Senior Writer and Analyst covering transportation for GreenBiz, and I'm always super excited when I get to be on the 350 podcast. You've probably been hearing bits and pieces about the emergence of self-driving cars, whether it's Tesla's cars, which can change lanes and park by themselves, or Waymo's recent milestone of 10 million miles driven on public roads. But some of our first hands-on, hands-free encounters with autonomous vehicles were, occur in slow-moving electric autonomous shuttles, which cities and organizations around the world are starting to experiment with. 
For example, in a couple weeks, electric shuttles made by the startup May Mobility will start picking up passengers in downtown Columbus, Ohio. A Swiss startup called Bessmile has been making software to manage these autonomous fleets for a few years now, and I recently spoke with Bessmile's co-founder, Anne Milano, about what she's learned about working on these autonomous shuttle projects. I think one of the main lessons is that it will, it will take a bit more time to have really reliable technology, that all these projects are needed for many reasons, and the main reason is to learn and learn um, how these types of new vehicles and new technologies can help complement the public transit networks, because we really think that they will not replace uh, traditional systems, but they will uh, help uh, provide services where traditional systems are not suitable because too expensive, too big, too uh, the level of demand is not high enough or, or anything like that. Also to learn about how citizen awareness can be uh, raised because you know, people face new technology, they have a lot of concerns and you need to do step-by-step processes to show them how the technology is working and how it can just help them improve their daily um, their daily it's a use of the city and of the transportation network. So, um, yeah, I think we learn a lot from this project, even if they are uh, projects with small things, because we are talking about projects between two and maximum six vehicles per state for now. Um, but still, it's, it's, it's very interesting and important for us to be part of this project. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to Center Stage, our other podcast, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email. 350 at greenbiz.com is the address. We love to hear from you. And Heather and I will be off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday returning on November 30th for another weekly edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. For our U.S. listeners, have a great, safe holiday. And thanks for listening.